All right, I'll pray and we'll start our time this morning. Lord, thank you for today. What a sweet privilege it is to be with your people. It's so easy for us to get dressed in our homes, get into vehicles, drive to this building and be together. To be under your word together, to be shepherded together, to sing praises together, to celebrate the Lord's table together, to rejoice in each other's lives, to weep with one another. We take for granted the ease of these things. I pray that this morning you would help us just to appreciate them all the more. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This morning's equipping hour is Cambodian church history. Uh, It's a bit of a misnomer. I don't know anything about Cambodian church history except for one book. (laughs) So really, this is a book review of one of my favorite books I've ever read. And it covers the history of the Cambodian church. And uh, Cambodian church history, as far as we can tell, spans from about the 1920s to the present. And so we get sort of a microcosm of church birthed in a country, in a language, in a culture um, through significant trials. And just so you know, the, the Cambodian church has not experienced a single decade without significant persecution. And so uh, I think the, the story is fascinating. I just want to share it with you. Uh, if you listen this morning and you just say, wow, never thought about Cambodia, I never will again, but isn't God kind? I'm okay with that. There will not be a test at the end. You will not need to remember facts and figures and dates. Um, I, I would encourage you to pick up this book by Don Cormack, Killing Fields, Living Fields. And uh, it is a, a story from a missionary who was in Cambodia before everything went um, very dark there. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I would encourage you to read that. Not everything in the, in the book is um, perfect, but it's such an overwhelmingly good book that um, it's, it's really in the probably top 10 books I've ever read easily. Um, so I would encourage you to read it. I, I was interested in Cambodia back in high school uh, as I you know, would hear stories um, about the Vietnam War, study the Vietnam War in school, um, hear stories from family members about the Vietnam War. The last air combat mission of the Vietnam War was flown out of Cambodia. And the, the, the last air mission is recorded in a, in a magazine article uh, as uh, closing with the harmonica version of the song Turkey in the Straw by an airman flying that last mission. And they were, they were joining up in a four-ship of uh, OV-10s, making their way back home after the ceasefire from the Vietnam War. And one of the pilots' job was to hold down the microphone, which meant to like keep the frequency open so the other airplanes could find each other, hone in on the frequency. And you could do a lot of things when you're holding the mic open. You could say, checking, checking, one, two, three, about a thousand times over. Uh, you could give memorized speeches. But this pilot played Turkey in the Straw on his harmonica as a mic hold down for everybody to hone in on his deal. So, anyway, a magazine article said this was the, the last air combat mission in Cambodia, and some unknown airman played Turkey in the Straw on his harmonica. End of the Vietnam War, everybody go home. Well, that pilot was my dad. So, got to hear that story growing up, and he still played Turkey in the Straw on his harmonica. You know, it went like this, son. You know. 
So I've been interested in the Vietnam War, been interested in Cambodia. Um, I'm not old enough to remember U.S. soldiers coming back and being reviled and spit upon. I'm not old enough to remember Kent State and the peace protests. Um, I listen to music from that era, and so I can get a flavor. Some of you were alive way back in the 1900s, even way back into the 1960s and 70s. Some of you were there and may remember. It was a tumultuous time in American history, tumultuous time in world history. Uh, really, Vietnam was the extension of hostilities of what was a non-hostile conflict, overtly, the Cold War. Um, the communism was spreading uh, from the Soviet Union to countries surrounding the Soviet Union. Uh, it, had, it had caused a war in Korea that split that country in half. It was causing a war in Vietnam that was splitting that country in half. And the surrounding regions in Southeast Asia were all affected. The U.S. had an interest in stopping communism, but got into the Vietnam War under nefarious pretenses and then fought it very poorly. Um, there's my summary statement of the Vietnam War. We fought it poorly. How's that? Um, the, the Cambodians were our allies during the Vietnam War. And they, we weren't technically there, but we were there. It was one of those kinds of things. And um, they, we used air bases in Cambodia to fly uh, missions and stage operations into Vietnam. And it was the North Vietnamese coming down into South Vietnam, looking to take over the country. And it was the Viet Cong, who were the subversive guerrilla fighters in South Vietnam, um, that we were fighting in that, in that time period. And the Cambodian people, the primary cultural group in Cambodia is the Khmer people. K-H-M-E-R, Khmer. Uh, that is the primary ethnic group. Now, there are Chinese Cambodians, and then there are about three dozen tribal groups in Cambodia with their own languages and their own culture, some of which still need the gospel and the Bible um, and churches in those cultures. But the Khmer people... Um, are the predominant culture, ethnicity in Cambodia. And so it's almost synonymous. When you say the Khmer people, you're saying the Cambodian people. The Khmer Rouge, Rouge is French for red, right? Those are the red Cambodians. Those are the communist Cambodians being funded by the Chinese and the Russians. Uh, they're the ones who are seeking to infiltrate Cambodia and take over the country. Well, the Khmer Rouge, under the leadership of a man named Pol Pot, were European-educated um, students in large part who had studied communism and socialism in the classroom and thought, wouldn't that be great to run this communist experiment? And they took the ideas of Darwin, survival of the fittest, and Marx, uh, which was socialism, communism, and combined those together and used their home country as a grand experiment to see if this would work. And basically, they turned the entire country of Cambodia. When the, when the U.S. retreated from Cambodia, Americans were tired of war. We were tired of the Vietnam War. We didn't want to be there anymore. We were doing everything we could to get out. And we left our allies high and dry so that when the Khmer Rouge came through Cambodia, they killed all our friends. They killed all our allies. Very few uh, survived the Khmer Rouge infiltration of Cambodia. And the American media, the American press, was sympathetic to socialism and communism. They had kind of a naive, idealistic view that maybe communism could work somewhere. And um, having been educated in some of the same schools that, the, that Pol Pot and his henchmen were educated, 
they had an affinity towards the communist experiment. And so the press turned a blind eye to what happened next in Cambodia. The world forgot and ignored, and the U.S. hightailed it out of there. So the Cambodian people, the Khmer people, were left to defend themselves against the onslaught of the Khmer Rouge, the Cambodian communists. And the result of that essentially was the entire country turned into one giant concentration camp. Imagine barbed wire, razor wire, and machine guns all around the border trying to keep everybody in. And the goal of the Khmer Rouge was to turn Cambodia into one giant rice paddy. If we can get all the people to act as peasantry and slave labor, they'll work the fields, we'll create this master plan of how everything should work according to a highly centralized communist government where the the government, the state, tells everybody what to do. We get to control who lives and who dies, who eats and who doesn't, what everybody possesses, and we're all going to live happily ever after because if nobody has any more than the next guy, no greed, no murder, no killing, we're all just going to be wonderful neighbors that are going to love each other. The problem with that is they had to kill everybody to create that system. And they had to kill everybody that disagreed with them. And this is single-handedly the largest genocide recorded in human history. By percentages, not, not, not numbers, right? Six million Jews um, and uh, you know, perhaps 15 million killed by Stalin and Hitler during World War II. But percentage of Cambodians, nearly 30% of the Cambodian people were exterminated in a very short period of time by the Khmer Rouge. And it was Cambodians killing Cambodians. Uh, really just a, a tragic, tragic story. So from 1975 to 1979, the application of Darwin and Marx to real life meant the strongest survived. Or the ones with the guns survived. And the, the Khmer Rouge sought to weed out everybody that was a threat to their system. So anybody that owned reading glasses, anybody that had a college education, taken out and shot. They would line up people in a line and they would say, hey, you know what? Our dear leader needs a doctor. Anybody have medical training? And some poor sap, thinking he's saving his own life, steps forward. And they just identified anybody that knew anything and eliminated them. And bullets were used at the front end, but in the end, it was garden hoe. It was uh, disembowelment and torture of every awful sort. Uh, it's just, it's, it's indescribable um, what took place there. And what the Khmer Rouge did was they had trained up kids to learn how to use machine guns and to be indoctrinated in their propaganda. And basically the guards of the country were young teenagers with machine guns who would do whatever the state told them to do. And it was crippling because if any of those people got a conscience and said, I don't want to do that, they were immediately eliminated. Steve. So 1975 to 1979. 1975 was the fall of Phnom Penh, which was the capital Um, 1979 was the end when the Vietnamese came back in and liberated the Cambodian people from the Khmer Rouge. They probably had colonial um, uh, mindset on Cambodia. I'll take questions at the end. Is that all right? I'll tell the story, and then uh, we'll do some questions. Um, And it wasn't until um, into the 90s 
that the Western world really got better pictures of what was going on. In fact, well into the late 90s, uh, there were still concentration camps in the country, even after, you know, 11 years after they were liberated by the Vietnamese. Um, people are still being held. People are still being eliminated. It was way after 1979 that the UN still recognized the Khmer Rouge as a legitimate political entity. And so when the UN finally did war, crime, war crimes trials for Khmer Rouge leaders uh, after 2000, um, the Cambodians didn't pay attention. They're like, the UN, give me a break. You still recognize the Khmer Rouge decades after you knew what was going on. And now you want to hold a show trial. That doesn't help us at all. So, I mean, it just, the world just turned a, a blind eye to the genocide and everything that was going on there. It's just an awful phase in Cambodian history, awful phase in world history. Um, and I've, I've had an interest in this for a long time. There's a 1984 movie called The Killing Fields that came out. I have not seen it, so I don't know whether to endorse it or not. Um, but it's a depiction of those events. Um, eventually, people started to catch on that... Um, the press had turned a blind eye, and the world had turned their backs, and we just watched Cambodia uh, self-destruct. I gained a, a different kind of interest in Cambodia later in life. I believe I was in college. I may have been out of college when I met a man named Seton Lee. And Seton Lee shared with me his testimony. In 1975, uh, he had um, uh, been singled out as an educated person by the Khmer Rouge and uh, was left for dead. They buried him up to his neck in dirt and rocks and left him in the scorching sun to be eaten by crabs and ants. Uh, he went unconscious, doesn't know for how many days, uh, but eventually came to and worked his way out of that hole, began to escape, ended up in a concentration camp, escaped from that, um, finally found himself in a um, refugee camp across the border in Thailand. And it was interesting, in order to get across the borders, to get out of Cambodia, you had to cross minefields. The Cambodian, the Khmer Rouge, had, had planted in their own ground punji stakes, which are uh, holes in the ground covered with leaves with sharp stakes sticking up so you'd fall into the hole and get impaled on the sticks. They put those everywhere in the forest. They put mines everywhere in the forest. So just trying to escape, you know, a crowd of people walking through a forest, 50% of them get blown up. And then you walk on the dead bodies to get across the minefield. So Seton Lee makes it across one of these minefields, ends up in a Thai refugee camp, which is a horrible place. Um, we'll talk more about the refugee camps later. Um, and at some point, um, Seton Lee was thinking to himself, there has to be something more than communism. There's got to be something bigger than communism out there. And he was soul-searching. And he was wanting to find out um, who made everything. There's a God over all of this. And, and so his, his curiosity uh, was in place. So that when he escaped out of, the, out of the refugee camp and was making his way back through the forest, um, through that minefield again, and being tracked by the Khmer Rouge, he said a, a wild man jumped out of the bushes, no shirt, covered in dirt, and with dreadlocked hair going in every which direction, and pulled him by the shirt cuffs. Shirt cuffs? What do you call these? Lapels. I don't know. Grabbed him and, and said, do you want to know the Lord of the universe? 
And it was the same phrase that he had been contemplating for several years up to this point. Yes, I want to know the Lord of the universe. And he said, you need to know Jesus Christ. And this wild, crazy man with dreadlocked hair covered in mud in the bushes who grabbed him explained to him the gospel and said, look, this forest is covered with landmines. Your next step could be your last. You need to know Jesus Christ. And he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Eventually made it through Thailand, out to China, to the United States, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and then has gone back to Cambodia, training Cambodian pastors. So I'm skipping ahead a little bit to Cambodian church history, but just so you know, there is a thriving church in Cambodia with rich roots of suffering. And so that's, that's really my new interest in Cambodian history is Cambodian church history. And so just to, to back up a little bit, and um, it wasn't until the 1920s that there are documented cases of Cambodian believers. And, and just to give you a flavor of Cambodia before the 1920s, um, back in the medieval period, um, European medieval period, uh, the Angkor, you may have heard of Angkor Wat. That's the big temples kind of lost in the jungles there in Cambodia. It's kind of a tourist attraction now. The Angkor religion was a religion of priest kings who ruled the, the Khmer people. And those priest kings had their own system of sacrifice and, and demon worship. And, and really, they, they directed worship to themselves. They proclaimed themselves as deities and they demanded sacrifice. And there was sort of a hereditary line of Angkor priest kings that ruled over Cambodia. Um, it was in the 1400s that Buddhism from Sri Lanka came to Cambodia. And the, the empire, the kingdom of Angkor fell in the 15th century. And it was replaced by this passive uh, Buddhism from Sri Lanka. Uh, and there were 300 years of civil wars uh, amongst the Cambodian people. And, and eventually Buddhism completely set in. In the mid-19th century, the French... Uh, made Cambodia a colony of theirs, part of their Indochina colonial empire in 1863. And it served as a French colony for 60 years, all the way up until 1923. The Buddhism in Cambodia was really a mix of Brahmanism, animism, ancestor worship, with Buddha as a figurehead. So a lot of isms in there. It was all bad. Uh, they, they worshipped demons. They worshipped their uncle Larry. He wasn't really named Larry. Um, they, they, they worshipped sticks and stones and a whole mix of all of these things. But all of it was swept up with the Buddhist ideas of cycles and reincarnation and karma. So karma is this idea that you get what's coming to you. And the whole goal of, of reincarnation in a Buddhist system is the, uh, the transportation between various levels of life. And so if you did good deeds in this life, you die and you're reincarnated and come back in a better life form. And humanity is the highest of the life forms, right? So if you do bad, you might go be a dog next time or an earthworm or something like that. If you do well, you might actually go to the Buddhist conception of heaven, but that's not the end. If you don't do well there, you can come back. And within Buddhism, of course, you have the various levels of humanity, sort of a caste system. You may be familiar with that in India. The idea is that if you did bad as a human in your last life, 
then you're going to suffer in this life. And you can't argue with karma. And if you did well in your last life, then you're prospering in this life, and you can't argue with karma. What does that do? If you're well off, do you have compassion for the poor? Of course not. You don't interfere with the cycles. You don't interfere with karma. I'm doing well because I did well. And if I do well now, I'll move on. And the ultimate goal of all of this was nirvana. Right? That's not a grunge band from Seattle. Well, it might have been. But nirvana is the, I don't know anything and I'm really happy about it. I sort of cease to exist and they're joined into the ethereal oblivion. And I don't know anything. That's the whole goal. And so the whole idea of Cambodian Buddhism was this up and down the scales, never-ending cycles, back and forth until eventually, and, and the way, by the way, you achieve nirvana is you eliminate all zest for life. You eliminate all passion, all feeling, all everything. You just aim at nothingness. And when you finally get there, you get to be nothingness. It's an awful system. It's an enslaving system. It's a satanic system designed to keep God's image bearers stuck in their idolatries. Stuck in their slavery to sin. Stuck on the pathway to hell. So, uh, uh, Cambodian proverb says, The waters rise, the fish eat the ants. The waters fall, the ants eat the fish. And it's reflective of Cambodian rice farming. They were dependent on the the river and the water cycles every year to come up and flood the fields, right? And when the fields would flood, fish would swim and they'd eat the ants. When the fields drained, the fish would die and the ants eat the fish. It's just this endless cycle and it just goes and goes and goes like the flood waters every year, like the rice harvest every year, like karma all the time, people up and down the cycles. It's all okay. And the only time you get in trouble with any of it is if you upset the system. So, in the early 1920s, a man affectionately known as Uncle Haas meets a missionary who was carrying around with him the book of Luke in Cambodian, in Khmer. He, was, uh, he gave the, the, the book of Luke to Uncle Haas, who was a simple rice farmer. And Uncle Haas had been asking fundamental questions. Why are we here? There's got to be more than these rice farms and these cycles. He's looking up. He prays, if there is a Lord over the universe, I want to know. And, and God brings a Western missionary with the first installments of a Cambodian Bible. By the way, the Cambodian Bible translation was begun in 1920, and it took 30 years to finish And it was done amongst Cambodian people across the border in in Vietnam. And the first Cambodian believers, about the same time as Uncle Haas, were outside of Cambodia, um, being reached by missionaries who were there interacting with Vietnamese and Cambodian people. And Uncle Haas, as far as anybody knows, is the first believer in Cambodia. So 20th century, really recent church history, that's when Cambodian church history sort of starts. And he shares the gospel with his family, and and his family members eventually come to Christ. I shortened that story a lot, just so you know. And his immediate family then face persecution, severe persecution. Um, He removes the idols off of his shelf, dusts it off. Now it's a place to hold the gospel of Luke in Cambodian, which they read. 
He starts preaching the gospel to friends and neighbors. And listen, they've been trained for centuries not to upset the system. And here was Uncle Haas upsetting the system. If there wasn't a good rice harvest, whose fault was it? Uncle Haas. If there was too much water or too little water or not enough grain, it was his fault. He was upsetting the deities. He was upsetting the cycles. And he was beaten up, run out of town, his family persecuted. Life was hard for the Cambodian church in its infant stages. And it would only get harder in every successive generation. For decades, there was no growth. Lots of seed planting. Like the rice farmers putting their seed in the ground and waiting for the crop to come up. Uncle Haas and his family and then a couple other believers around them faithfully proclaimed the gospel and got beat up for it regularly. Threatened with death, run out of town, ostracized, excommunicated. And they were faithful at just proclaiming the gospel, throwing seed wherever they could. God began to do an amazing thing. Um, God was raising up other believers. In 1941, the Japanese invaded Cambodia. And a small band of Christians were uh, imprisoned. And every foreign missionary in Cambodia was run out of the country. So now an infant church with just a couple of dozen believers... And a growing Bible has to face life on its own. No missionary contact, no missionary involvement. Can I tell you that that was a good thing? What did they have? They had their Bible in their language and they grew. And what grew in Cambodia was discipleship, biblical church, the Lord's table, gathering, preaching. There were men who um, were character qualified to be pastors and then started being trained to be pastors. There were Cambodian seminaries training pastors. And all of these things just started happening in Cambodia. And it was slow and there were persecutions. At one point, the Cambodian government saw that Christianity was a threat to the status quo. They made it illegal. They banned all Christian material and they put pastors in jail. As the Cambodian church hasn't seen anything but this kind of persecution in its history. And, and what happened is um, what Don Cormack refers to as the thinning of the Cambodian church. Anytime the, the, the gospel goes out, there are people who receive the gospel from what Jesus would call a good soil and a good heart. And then there are other places where seed falls on ground and stuff shoots up, but it doesn't last And the persecution, the waves of persecution in each decade of the Cambodian church served to demonstrate who was a genuine follower of Christ and who was not. And and those have been very helpful times for the Cambodian church, really preparing the Cambodian church for a purity of its proclamation and its living in preparation for its most difficult trial. In... uh, April 17th, 1975, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge had taken over the entire country and encircled the capital city of Phnom Penh and laid siege to it for four months. And they waited for a little while to try to starve out the city. And so the city was just filled with disease and starvation and people trying to get out and people being killed. The people in Phnom Penh... Uh, were not aware of what was happening throughout the countryside. 
Um, some listened to the propaganda from the Khmer Rouge and believed the lie that, hey, the, the Khmer Rouge is all about the people and the state is for you and we're going to provide for all your needs. When the state uh, rules the city, there will be no more hunger. Um, and, and some believed and, and crossed over. Uh, many believed that lie, crossed over, and were killed because their education levels were a threat to the Khmer Rouge. By the way, anybody that was a Christian was labeled an agent for the CIA and was summarily executed. Christianity, according to the Khmer Rouge, was a Western imperialistic invasion, and anybody who claimed to follow Christ was obviously a secret agent for the U.S. CIA. So Christians were killed on the spot. Only one active Cambodian pastor who was active as a pastor prior to the Khmer Rouge takeover survived till after they were out of power. Only one. Um, Only three pastors uh, of uh, Cambodian pastors survived at all, but only one that was a pastor in country (laughs) survived the killing fields. Um. I'm not afraid of spoilers, and I don't mind telling you the end of some of these stories, but I don't want to discourage you from reading Don Cormack's book. Um, and, and, and there are stories in there that are hard to take. Um, what the Khmer Rouge did to men, women, and children indiscriminately is just sickening to the stomach. And, and if you're familiar with the Auschwitz, uh, if you're familiar with the Nazi death camps, um, those were really bad. Um, but the entire country was a death camp. Uh, there were tens of thousands of people uh, that were in S21, one particular extermination camp. Tens of thousands of Cambodians went in there. Only seven people survived. I mean, the, the, the numbers are simply staggering. The reason that the 1984 movie was called The Killing Fields was because the city centers were places where all the propaganda was told and everything looked clean and the the communist streets all went straight and there was no trash and food was distributed in its even but meager proportions. But out there away from the people were the killing fields where dissenters were removed from the city, taken out into the countryside, forced to dig their own graves oftentimes, and then killed with a garden hoe or shot in the head. And it wasn't for decades afterwards that people going into Cambodia, walking out into a field, uncover these mass graves. Just bodies everywhere. And you can go to Cambodia today and see the Killing Fields Museum. And it's just piles and 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 piles of human skulls, bones all jumbled together. It's just awful. And as the Khmer Rouge encircled Phnom Penh, the Christians who had been uh, forced into that city and the Christians who lived in that city, which had become a training center for pastors, uh, were encircled. And you can imagine the frenetic activity of a population surrounded by a, a murderous um, army no way to defend themselves, starving, eating each other. And the Christians looked different. And the Christians stood out. 
And the Christians had hope. And the Christians had Bibles. And the Christians had people who had been trained under the school of persecution already. Who knew what it was like to stand up for Christ in the face of death. And were prepared for this. And so the church in Phnom Penh on April 17th, 1975 was some 4,000 people. And their last Lord's Day service on that Sunday had 185 baptisms as people were coming in droves to hear the gospel. And, and, their, and their testimonies are, are just remarkable because their life on this earth as, as, a, as a Cambodian person under the, under the veneer of Buddhism, but living out all the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. <laughs> suddenly confronted with their own mortality and meeting a gospel of hope in Jesus Christ for the first time. And then believing that gospel, knowing immediately what the consequences would be if found out. And then proclaiming that gospel to the next person and the next person and the next person. It's just remarkable. And they, they faced death every day. They could smell the stench of blood as the army drew nearer and encircled the city. A middle-aged widow happened to pick up a Christian tract which she saw blowing around in a crowded marketplace. On reading it over several times, she was immediately convicted in her heart of the truth and importance of the message she held in her hand. Not knowing where to turn for help, she set out early one Sunday to locate a church. She knew at least that this was the day when Christians gathered for worship. Finally, walking down Pallone Avenue, she happened to notice a sign which read, Good News Center, hanging on the front fence of a house. Finding no one at home, for they were all at church, she sat herself down on the doorstep and waited. The first Cambodian Christian to return answered her questions and led her to repentance and faith in Christ. The following week, she was, she was back again at the door with a further request. Would someone come out to her home and tell all those waiting there the same message she had heard the week before? The young evangelist, on entering the little wooden house, found it packed by 40 or so eager neighbors sitting cross-legged on the floor, waiting expectantly to hear the message. Thus began another church. And this story goes on and on and on. Very short window of time. Seeds were planted, lots of waiting, no harvest, four believers, then 12, decades go by. Then a small group of believers, discipleship, training pastors, churches growing, persecution in waves. Then all of a sudden, the church explodes. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Cambodians got to live seven days of a Christian life or three weeks of a Christian life or 30 minutes of the Christian life. It is said that 90 to 95% of Christians in Cambodia were executed by the Khmer Rouge. Now the church grew and then was snuffed out. gone. The Christians that survived, survived in the camps. After the Khmer Rouge was cleared out by the Vietnamese, the Khmer Rouge still existed as a political entity. And the Khmer Rouge were then held captive in concentration camps by the Vietnamese on the border ends of the country of Cambodia. And they were held captive there with the very people that they had tortured and held captive. So now you have Cambodians and Khmer Rouge in the same concentration camp living together. And you can imagine. 
and the decadence, the immorality, the violence, the drunkenness that goes on in a concentration camp, the starvation and more cannibalism, awful scenes. And at one particular camp, there was a church of 45,000 people. 45,000 believers in one concentration camp. The church is growing. Even there under persecution and ostracism, the church is growing. And God's doing a remarkable work. Number two man in Cambodia uh, was a man known as Comrade Dutch. I can't pronounce his Cambodian name. He was the leader of S21, that camp I told you about, with tens of thousands of victims and seven survivors. He was Pol Pot's number two man. Uh, he is today in prison uh, for life, for war crimes, um, and in a concentration camp. He heard the gospel. And Cambodian believers who had been on the run from this man had a real dilemma. Could you preach the gospel to this man? And, and, and someone did. And he believed. And in his war triumphs cry, he says, I, I, I take responsibility for what I did. I deserve the punishment you give me. Anyway, you should read this book. You're dismissed. try. Sorry. Yeah, the book is called Killing Fields, Living Fields by Don Cormack. Omri knows how to get them. There's two back there at the book table right now. Love each other. Yeah, any other questions? There was a hand over here. Any other questions? Yeah, go ahead. Pol Pot died of old age, but his number two man is still alive. Yeah. Well, last I heard, I think in 2018, um, he was said to have been uh, in a hospital with serious medical conditions. I don't know anything beyond that. I don't know. Yeah, that might be worth a Google. Good question. All right, you're dismissed.